There's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to pick up at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16. Matthew 6, 16. Now last week we learned that Jews were required to perform acts of piety, or what they called deeds of righteousness. The identity of a Jew was determined by, and their piety was determined by, uh, the acts of righteousness that they did, which included almsgiving, giving to the poor, prayer to God three times a day. If you did that, you were a pious person. And fasting. Now we know that uh, the majority of the Jews never did this. Uh, just like the majority of the Jews today probably don't get involved in fasting, except maybe on the Day of Atonement once a year. But there was a group of people called the Pharisees, uh, who were looked upon as pious ones. They were people who practiced piety, and they, they did give to the poor, and they did pray, and they did fast. And uh, Jesus says that uh, while they did these things to the letter of the law, their heart was far away from God when they did them. And uh, they did it in order to be seen by people. The people would say, oh, look at Look how much money he gave. He must be a pious person. And Jesus said, when you do it in front of people, in order to get their applause or get accolades, then you've already got your reward. You're not getting any reward from God. So you might be pious in the eyes of people, but you're not pious in the eyes of God. So we covered almsgiving last week in prayer. And this week we're going to look at fasting. So look at verse 16. That's Matthew 6, 16. The third act of piety. Jesus says, moreover, when you fast, do not do, do not be, do not fast like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. So here he's giving us a negative command. He says, now, when it comes to fasting, when you do that, don't do it like the hypocrites do it. He says, now what they do is they distort their face. Uh, they follow these certain rules. They said, when we fast, and by the way, they fasted on, this is great, they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Because they were the market days. And then they would go to the market and they would make sure they didn't comb their hair that day, they didn't wash their face, uh, and they would contort their face and they'd walk around. Some would even put ashes on their heads like uh, some denominations do for Ash Wednesday, and then that would mark them as fasting. And then people say, oh, there's somebody that's fasting. Look, there's a pious man. Well, Jesus says, well, if you get the accolades of man, you don't get the accolades of God. And Jesus says, don't do it like they're doing it. So how should we do it? Well, look what he says, how we should do it. He said... Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward at the end of verse 16. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. That means a comb your hair, put on your deodorant, wash your face, get dressed up like a normal day, so that if you're fasting, no one can tell the difference between this day and another day. And it got to the point that in the early church, in the second century church, beyond Bible times, uh, Christians fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays on days that were not market days. So that when they went around, no one would know if they were fasting 
or not. And so this is Jesus' statement here. And then look what he says in verse 18. He says, we do it so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in heaven in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So don't tell anybody that you're fasting. You don't have to tell God. He knows that you're fasting. And He will reward you according to your piety. Now, it continues on in that same vein in verse 19. Here's the next thing he said. I think that this is all connected. Everything we're going to read today deals with the same subject. It's all connected about getting rewards, doing things publicly, for the wrong reasons, bad motives, and all this. So watch what he says here. Do not lay up treasures. Do not lay up for yourself treasures. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures. There's a negative command. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures. Look at verse 20. But lay up for yourself treasures. <coughs> you see that? Look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures. But in verse 20, lay up for yourself treasures. Now notice that both of those statements are basically the same. One's a negative, of course, and one's a positive. But you see the words, lay up for yourselves. You see that? Treasures. Exactly the same. But what's the difference between one being a negative and one being positive? It's where you lay your treasures up. In verse 19 it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures where? On earth. But verse 20 says, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. So, it's okay to lay up treasures for yourself. But make sure you don't do it on earth. Make sure that you lay up your treasures in heaven. Now, treasures, and here's where I think most commentators make their mistake. They think that this is talking about money. And we're going to see it a little bit later. He's going to talk about mammon. We're going to think that that's money not talking about money. <clears throat> treasures are the things that you hold precious. Treasures are your treasures. Now remember who Jesus is talking to. Massive Jewish people. Most of those people were peasants. They didn't have money. Like we have money. A treasure for a Jewish person would be that coat on their back, wouldn't it? They use that as their bedroll. It would be uh, maybe where they stay, you know, where they, where they sleep. It would be uh, the few coins that they did have and the food that they ate. Those would be their treasures. <coughs> just talking about just normal things. <clears throat> so what he says is, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth. Now watch this. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Okay? So, if you lay up things on earth for yourselves, they will deteriorate. They're not secure. But in verse 20, 20 it says, Lay up treasures in heaven where moth and nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's where things are secure. Now, Jesus is using a lot of imagery here. He's not talking literally. How do you lay up a coat in heaven? How do you lay up? I don't even know where heaven is, do you? You ever been there? I ask you for directions how to get there. Your directions be worse than Drake Patterson's directions. <laughs> how, do you, how do you lay up a coat? How do you lay up some food? 
in heaven for safekeeping. So Jesus is not talking literally, so what is he implying? Most likely he is, he is saying, uh, those things that you treasure, make sure you have a right attitude toward them. Uh, if you have a few coins, or you have some food, or you have some clothes, and you want to do an act of piety or righteousness, don't do it so everyone can see, because guess what? You've got your reward on earth already. Do it in a way that no one really knows what you're doing, so that God in heaven sees and you will have your reward. See, he's really going on with the same kind of thinking. Does that make sense to you? So don't do things uh, to be seen by others. Do things to be seen by God. Make sure your attitude is correct toward goods, towards things that are precious to you. Use them to help others. Don't hoard them only for yourself. Don't say, well, this is mine. I'm going to keep my coat. Well, Jesus said, give your coat away if you had to, didn't he? This is mine. I'm not going to give any alms to any poor person. Well, guess what? Jesus said, well, we should do it, but we should do it for the right reason. Don't hoard it for yourselves. Uh, everything that you have and everything you should do should be for God's glory, that he will save. So God really asked us to surrender all of our treasures to him. Everything that we claim ownership over, we should just surrender and relinquish it to God and say, God, use it for your purposes. And this is what stewardship is all about. Uh, we don't claim that what we have is ours. We claim that what we have we are, is God's and we are stewards of God's resources. Some of it is used for our needs. Some of it is used for other people's needs. And it's used in the right way with the right attitude. So that's what we are to be. We are to be stewards. Now here's the reason for these instructions. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the issue is a heart issue. <clears throat> See, that's, once you get that, you got it all. Uh, make sure that you don't have a divided heart. Goes right back to the Beatitudes, isn't it? Blessed are the what? Pure in heart. Be single-hearted. You see, that's what he's saying. Uh, so how you use your stuff and why you use your stuff uh, will determine the issue of the heart, the condition of your heart. Are you using it just for yourself? Or if you do give it to others, are you doing it to be seen by others and get the applause of others? Or are you saying, I'm just a steward, I'm using it for God's glory, and if I give it away, I'm giving it to other people so that God sees it, not other people see it. So don't have a divided heart. That's the issue there, heart. Now look at verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. The lamp of the body is the eye. Now he's not talking literally a lamp. My eye doesn't look like a lamp. Now this would be an oil lamp. Now my eye doesn't look like an oil lamp. So remember, he's talking figuratively. Okay, So that's why you're always having to find out what the meaning behind his words. Look what he says in verse 22. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is good. Now, a good eye would be a healthy eye, if we were talking literally. It would be a healthy eye. And so that would be an eye that doesn't have cataracts, for example. And he says, if your eye is healthy, or good, verse 22, your whole body is full of light. You see things clearly. 
Now, if you don't have, if you have cataracts, you don't see things clearly, right? So, but he's not talking about literal eyes. What's he talking about? He's not talking about literal eyes. He's not talking about clear eyesight. He's using the term metaphorically. He's using it as a figure of speech. He's talking about the way we look at things. He's talking about how we perceive things. Uh, what are our motives? What are our our attitudes? Some translations translate verse 22 like this. The lamp of the body is the eye, and if therefore if your eye is single. Anybody have a translation that says your eye is single? That's a, probably a better meaning of the text. Because it means if your eye is not divided. Uh, he's talking about our mind's eye. Not our literal eye, our mind's eye. How do you perceive things? How do you look at things? Uh, do you look at things singly the way you should look at things? Doing everything for God's glory? Or do you have a divided heart? Divided mind's eye. We must be single-minded in the sense that we are totally devoted to God. Now this is what he's going to be talking about. Okay? That again is the pure heart. Look what he says in verse 23. But if your eye is bad, you know, literally that would mean if you have cataracts. Right? Look what it says. Look, read it literally. If your eye is bad, then the whole your whole body is full of darkness. That's right. There's a film over your eye and you can't see clearly. Right? Now, I have bad eyes, and you know that because I wear glasses. I'm nearsighted. Take my glasses off, and guess what? <coughs> it's darker than it is with my glasses on. I remember the first time I discovered I needed glasses. <coughs> now, I've been playing baseball until the age of 25. And, uh, but I was, I could tell there was something wrong out there in the field. <coughs> And one day I was at lunch with my mother, and she had a pair of glasses. She just got a new prescription. And I said, hey, let me look at your glasses. And I put her glasses on, and suddenly, it's like a miracle. <laughs> Everything was bright, and it was light. So I had to go get glasses. Now, if I take these glasses off, guess what happens? If I'm riding down the road, and there's that single line right down the road, because I've got astigmatism, Instead of seeing one line, guess what I see? Two lines. He's not talking about literal eyes. He's talking about your mind's eye. He's talking about your heart's eye. He says, make sure that your eye is single, <laughs> that your motivations are single, that your devotion is totally to the Lord. Don't have a divided loyalty. Don't have divided motives. Don't have a divided heart. The person who is double-minded receives what? James said. Nothing. See, and this is what he's talking about. So he's not talking about literal eyes here. He's talking about being double-minded and mixed motives. And if we're double-minded and we have mixed motives, our life will be out of focus because on the one side I want to do what I want. I want to hoard my treasures for myself. Or if I give them away, I want to be seen. And on the other side, there's that part of me that wants to do what's right for God. Give without being seen. Allow God to reward me. All that I own is actually God's. I'm just a steward. And you have that divided mind, and that's what he's talking about here. Our eyes have to be clear. Our eyes have to be single. 
that make sense? He says at the end of verse 23, he says, If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, if you're all blurry and everything, how great is that darkness? How intense it is. And a lot of us live in darkness because we have mixed motives. That's why we're to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So, in a sense, he's talking about our hearts. Our hearts are the eyes of our soul. And they, we need to be single-minded. If not, there's going to be a tug-of-war that goes on between us. Now look at verse 24. Notice how all this fits in. No man can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and he will despise the other. <clears throat> now notice... He doesn't say in verse 24, he doesn't say no man should serve two masters. Does it say that? He doesn't say no man should, should serve two masters. What's he say? No man can serve two masters. You can't say on the one hand I'll do this and on the other hand I'll do that and serve two masters. You can't do it. It's impossible. Possible. You don't have the ability to serve two masters. You will eventually turn to one and give that one your... You'll be partial toward the one. You can't serve two masters. Either you will lay up treasures on earth and your treasures will become idols and you'll serve them and your own good or you'll see that everything is God's and your only reward you want is from God and you will serve God. You can't serve two masters. The amazing thing is that the Pharisees tried to. They were hypocrites. They would go out and do pious works, and they would say, we're serving God, we're serving God. But why did they do the pious works? To be seen by what? Men. Ah! See? That's why they were called hypocrites. They put on a mask. They acted like they were serving God, but in reality, who were they serving? Themselves. can't serve two masters. You might appear to be serving God, but in reality, you're serving yourself. You can't serve two masters. And that's what he's saying here. So look what he says at the end of verse 24. He says, You can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the mammon here wouldn't be money. It would be just whatever your treasure is. You either make a, could be money, but it doesn't have to be money. So your devotion will either be to things, and you'll make idols out of them, or your devotion will be to God. So that's what he's saying here. Now, it's interesting that John Milton, in Paradise Lost, wrote about mammon. And he actually personified it. He identified mammon, mammon in his allegory as a fallen angel, fallen spirit. And he named that fallen spirit Mammon. And he called it Mammon because this spirit admired the streets of gold more than it admired God. <laughs> it claimed to be serving God up in heaven, this spirit, but guess what it was looking at? Streets of gold. And it became a fallen spirit. And uh, Jesus says you can't serve things and God at the same time. You don't have the ability to do it. 
One is going to get your loyalty. And so then he gives us these instructions. So look what he says, therefore. So now we're going to get our first instruction. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. So why would he say therefore? Because people are saying, well, if, I don't, not, if I'm not concerned about money and I don't hoard it up, I'm going to, oh, I won't be able to, oh, eat, I won't be able to live up. So what does he say? Therefore, he's going to cut that argument off even before you think it. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Don't have a single thought about it. If your devotion is to God, don't, don't even think of that. Don't be double-minded. Do not worry about it. Don't be anxious. Don't fret about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body or what you will put on it. Don't have a single thought about that. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And the answer is what? Yes, your life is much more than that. So don't be concerned about these things. If you're concerned about these things, then you're serving these things. Your whole attention's on these things. But if you're serving God, you don't have to be concerned about anything. He'll take care of everything. See? And so this is what Jesus is trying to say. If you're serving God, don't doubt. Don't be anxious about these things. Just get on with your life. If your life is more than that, get on with your life. Live as the kingdom citizen. Look at verse 26. It gives us an illustration to prove that point. You say, well, how do I know it works? Watch. <clears throat> Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow. That means they don't plant seeds. The birds of the air. I've never seen a bird plant a crop. Have you? No. They don't reap. I never see them get out to you know, harvest <laughs> the, the, the corn or the whatever. And uh, nor do they gather in the barns, and not like farmers, and start saving in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He takes care of them. Now, how does God feed the birds? Did you ever think about that? Well, berries on bushes, seeds on flowers, worms in the ground. He, he uh, takes care of them naturally. But you know what else? I have two bird feeders. And a bird bath. And I fill up that feeder, and Lynn fills up the feeder, and then the birds come and they eat. They have no idea that a higher intelligence gave them that food. And I sit back, and Lynn sits back, and we just watch those birds, and we just say, I need some more birds, look at me. And we get a great joy out of watching the birds. Well, that's what God does. If you can just be devoted to God and say, everything that I have is yours. I'm just a steward. I know you want me to use some for my needs, but you also want me to help others for your glory without getting credit. God will take care of you in that same way. That's how God acts. And look what else it says in verse 26. Right down at the end, it says, are you not more valuable than they are? Are you not much more valuable than a bird? And the answer is yes. <coughs> well, if God takes care of the birds, won't he take care of you? 
if you do God's business the right way, won't He take care of your business? Won't He take care of you? This is what He's saying. He said, well, how will He take care of me? The same way He takes care of the birds. Sometimes it's just naturally, and guess what? Sometimes it's through me. And God will take care of you the same way. He's talking to poor people here. You want to talk to rich people? If I share some of my clothes, I'm going to have Hey, let God take care of it. How will we do it? Well, there's something called the church. How's God going to take care of Sandy's kids? He's taking care of Sandy's kids through you. You think whenever they move in that apartment complex that they expected to get food? And who's getting the benefit out of it? You are. You're getting the joy out of it. They've never seen you. And they're being taken. Is God taking care of them? Did you doing this because you think this is what God wants you to do? Yes. That's how He's taking care of them. The early church, they get together. They, those that had a little bit would bring food together and have a great big Lord's Supper and have a great big meal and everybody ate. God has ways of taking care of you. He can send manna down from heaven if He wants. Sometimes he does that, and other times he does it other ways. But see, we need to get our eyes on God and realize just how great he is and how much he really loves us. So look at verse 27. He asks a question. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his statue? And some translations say, which of you, by worrying, can add one hour to his life? Now, I don't care whether it's an inch or whether it's an hour. How many of us can add an extra hour to our lives. You think that you have the ability to do that. Or to uh, add 18 inches a cubit to your height. None of us can. Well, let me say, how about if you're worried? Do you think you could add it then? Wouldn't that make the difference if you're worried about it? Well, if you can't add it, then why worry about it? See, he's trying to show you how absurd we are. And we are absurd. And then he gives the second illustration. Look at verse 28. He says, Now, if God clothes the grass of the field, no, verse 28 rather, so why do you worry about clothing? Look, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Now he's talking about wildflowers. Flowers that grow out in the field. Uh, the ones that are not planted by people. He says, they never spin. Did you ever see a flower, a wildflower, get on a spindle? Start spinning clothes? Did you ever see one get out and dig up a garden? Say, hey, I'm going to plant three little kids. They don't do any of these things. They don't sow. They don't do any. They don't work. Uh, these are wildflowers. These are flowers. These are like uh, blue bonnets. Are you just, one day, there they are. And so he says this. And yet, verse 29, I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed. like one of these. Now Solomon was the richest man in the world and he had the most expensive clothes because he was a king. We're talking about royal clothes. Jesus says Solomon's clothes compared to the rainbow of colors of the wildflowers 
His clothing couldn't even compare. Now, if that's the case, because there's a lesson here, if that's the case, God can take care of us in the same way. Now look, at least with the birds, I feed the birds. But how about the wildflowers? Who gives them their color? Who clothes them? No human beings are involved in that one. The birds are stronger than flowers. Flower doesn't last too long. How long will the blue bonnets last? But see, a bird lasts longer. See, birds, a flower is much more fragile than a bird. God even takes care of the most fragile thing. Even a wildflower, God takes care of. So look what it says in verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into a fire, you might throw it in to heat up your fireplace or your house. Will he not, look at this, much more clothe you? Now there's that much more again. Three times he uses much more about you. If he does this, much more for you. If he does that, much more for you. Does God love you more than that? Yes, much more than this. How much will God much more do this for you? But look at the end of verse 30. O you of little faith. There's only one reason we are the way we are. You want to know what it is? A little faith. It's the only reason that we're the way we are. It's the only reason we feel like hoard after hoard. For myself, just for me. <laughs> or, I'll use it, but I need to get a little bit of credit here. Why? Because we don't think God will reward us when we do things like that, but we don't think God can take care of us. But we have a little faith. We don't have we don't have the sense of a bird brain. That's the bottom line, isn't it? We don't even have a bird brain when it comes to faith. Birds trust God more than we trust God. You know what we need to say? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Because I think that's where we are. We believe, but yet we don't believe. Guess what we are? Double-minded, double-minded, double-minded. We need to be single-minded, pure of heart, pure of heart. We shouldn't say, Lord, help my unbelief a little bit so I can just be a little bit. No, we need to be fully devoted to the Lord and trust Him entirely. So then he says in verse 31, Therefore, I think I've seen that one before. You saw verse 25, therefore, didn't you? Don't worry. Verse 28, so, and that also is a therefore in the Greek. So, why do you worry? Therefore, don't, why, why worry? And now verse 31, therefore, do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? You don't have to worry. What shall we wear? The only reason we are that way is because we don't have single-hearted faith. We have split personalities when it comes to God. It's this craziest thing. And in verse 32, he says this. For after all these things, what? All those necessities of life. Eating, drinking, all that kind of stuff. For all these things, the Gentiles, the pagans, seek. When you act like that, you're acting like a lost person. 
Most of us act more like lost persons than safe persons, don't we? This is how lost people act. Not how saved people act. It's not how kingdom citizens act. The Gentiles act that way. Now look at the keep going in verse 32. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. Don't act like them. God knows what your needs are. He'll take care of you. In fact, if you look, I have a little a scripture next to my verse there. It says 6 8. Look back at 6 8 and just see what that says. I see it there, so it must be important. Oh, yeah, now it makes sense. Look what he says. Therefore, do not act like them. <laughs> what? For your father knows the things that you have need of before you even ask him. Hey, it's the second time he said that, isn't it? So do you think God knows what you need? you think that he not only can supply your need, but according to this, will supply your need? Yes, don't act like the heathen. Act more like kingdom citizens. And then he has a contrast. But here's what we're to do. Don't act like heathen, but here's what we're to do. Verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, just do things God's way. Uh, Perform pious acts for God's reward. Be single-minded. Do good things with with the right motives. Trust God. That's all he's saying. Trust God. Verse 34 says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. Well, guess what? Why should I worry about tomorrow? It's not even here. So what should I do? I should live for today. (laughs) And if I live for today, I should trust the Lord today. Give us this day. Our Father which art in heaven, give us this day what? Our daily daily bread. (laughs) That's not what we're to do. Jesus' whole teaching is really the same thing. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry uh, will worry about its own things. <laughs> what are you concerned about tomorrow? James said, don't even say tomorrow I'll do this or tomorrow I'll do that. He said, say tomorrow I'll do this if the Lord's willing. You might not even be here. <laughs> Believe me, the pagans, will, the heathen, the Gentiles will be worrying about tomorrow. You don't have to worry about it. There's plenty of, plenty of people worrying about tomorrow. All you need to do is trust the Lord. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, yes, we don't have to worry about it. Uh, Troubles will come, but guess what? We live above that. See, all we have to do is trust God. All we have to do is live in the now. So all the way through this passage, it's the same message. The same message is trust God, live like kingdom citizens, Live for today. Uh, trust your Heavenly Father that He knows what you need even before you ask and be a person of faith. Next week we pick up at chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And Jesus talks about how we are to treat other people. So we'll uh, do that next week. Lord, we thank You for uh, this passage of Scripture that is so convicting. Oh, how we want to live this way. Lord, our prayer indeed is, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Help us to be people who surrender more and more of our lives to you, turning more and more of our lives over to you, entrusting everything we own to you, 
and uh, may it be at your disposal. We know that you give us these things that meet needs. You have all kinds of ways of meeting our needs. And you want us to do things right. You want us to seek your kingdom. That means that we are to be motivated and do things for your kingdom and your glory. And we know that you'll take care of us. So, Lord, help us to be more like kingdom citizens than the heathen. In Christ's name we pray.